Good morning, everyone. Today's reading is from Luke 14, verses 1 through 24. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told the parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. They all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now it's on. Boom. Now it's on. Sorry about that. Thank you, Adam. Uh, my name is Harrison, and I am one of the pastors at EP. Will you join me in prayer? Father, uh, it is so, so very good to be with your people on this day. Lord, thank you for being here with us. Father, thank you uh, for Laura and for the mission that you've put in her heart. Uh, Lord, I, 
I am so excited. I'm so excited about the gospel that will go forth to the people of Japan because you have taken this woman and you are moving her to the other side of the world to deliver that good news. Father, I pray that lives will be changed, that men, women, children, families, communities, and cultures will be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would provide Laura with everything she needs, and she'll be there in your timing. Lord, I pray that you will go before her and around her. Father, I pray that you'll prepare the hearts and minds of those that, that will hear the gospel from her in the years to come, that they too might know the hope of heaven. Father, thank you for this word that you have given us today in Luke 14. Lord, you're so faithful to tell us what we need to hear. Father, I pray that you'll open up our hearts today. Lord, that you'd scrape away the scales. Lord, open our, our hard hearts, my hard heart. Lord, and fill us with your grace and truth. I pray that you wouldn't indeed transform us more and more and more so that we look more and more like you and we're satisfied with you above all else. Lord, I pray even now that I would decrease and that you would increase. If you alone are worthy of honor and glory, and it is you, O Lord, that transforms the soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. My friends, um, we, you, me, we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis, uh, in an essay in The Weight of Glory, said that it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an, ignorant jo- uh, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, aren't we? I am. And anytime we elevate these mud pies above the holiday at the sea, we are the ones that lose. When we elevate our idols... Above Jesus, we will be disappointed. But that's what we do. We elevate our idols and what those idols can bring us above Jesus, who he is, and what he gives to us. In this passage and the two parables that are attached to it, Jesus opens that up to us. It begins with a deception And it ends with a whole lot of pride, some rebuke, and an offer of life forever. Jesus is invited to a party that appears to be a holiday at the sea, but it's really a a party making mud pies in the slums. It's a party of deception. He's invited to the party with Pharisees and lawyers, those that were the ruling class of the city, 
They were the leaders and the influencers of the city, and Jesus has been invited there. And you would think maybe at the outset that that's because they see him as, a, as an influencer, as someone that would be their equal, and they would want to learn from him. But that's not the case at all. We, we figure that out pretty quickly as we look at the first verse of, of chapter 14. He went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. They're not engaging with him. The language that we see there is the language of we're here to trick you. We're here to trip you up. We want to find out what's going on. And then you discover that there's a man there in their midst who has something called dropsy. It was a disease that he had. Uh, He would not have been invited to such a party. Uh, Such a man with such a disease would not have been invited into the full worship of the Jews. He would have been on the outside looking in. He's there as a trap for Jesus. Now, when you want to trap a mouse, what do you do? You put something in the trap that, that the mouse can't resist. Uh, maybe, it's, uh, maybe it's cheese. Maybe it's peanut butter. Peanut butter works great, by the way. Uh, you know, wh- whatever you choose, whatever your particular mouse likes, he will like no more if the, if the trap works. So what are they trapping Jesus with? They're trapping Jesus with compassion. Jesus will not resist compassion. He asks them, he said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He, he steps right into that trap knowing that he's above the trap, but he knows why he's there. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They remain silent. I think at this point they're recognizing that they have met their match, and this is not going to go as they plan. He said to them, which of you having a son, someone highly valued, or an ox, the ox is going to come up again in the parable in a moment, a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. All sorts of laws related to the Sabbath. If your ox falls in a ditch, though, you can get the ox out of the ditch. If your son falls in a well, you can get your son out. So he's asking them, he's, he's facing them with a hypocrisy, and he's asking them, you're going to love your son, you're going to love the oxen, but here's someone that is sick, and he's in your midst, and you have the ability to heal him, and you're not doing it. You're here to trap me knowing full well that I am going to have compassion on this individual and heal him. And this is Sabbath and you will think ill of me because of that. And he calls them on their their hypocrisy knowing that it's not just that they have sought to deceive him, but they themselves are deceived. Spurgeon said that as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there so abundantly there that if you cannot detect sin, you are deceived. You are deceived. They themselves are deceived. They don't see the sin in their own heart and the sin in their very deception of Jesus. Do you ever fit that category that you don't see the sin in your own heart? Boy, I do. I do. It is so easy to deceive myself and to imagine that somehow I am above that and I don't see my own sin. Do you know what that's like? These were self-deceived. They know that if they break through their self-deception, they break through their hard hearts, if they lower their guard and begin to believe Jesus, they have to then follow Jesus. If you truly believe Jesus, you have no other choice. You have to follow him and leave your idols behind. Leave your pride behind, leave your position behind, leave your wealth behind, 
if that's what, you, what it's all built on. You have to leave all of your idols, the approval of man behind if you're going to follow Jesus. Paul made it clear, am I still, am I a pleaser of God or of man? It's one or the other. These have decided that they will be pleasers of each other, and so they have sought to trap Jesus. Their pride has gripped them. He tells two parables here to bring the, 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 the lesson home to them. Uh, one is to, uh, to, the, to, the, um, to those that are invited, and the next one is to the one that is doing the inviting. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose places of honor, saying, which of you who are invited by someone to a wedding feast do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him? And he goes on, he says, listen, if you're going to be the one that's going to sit in the front, because that's where the, the most honored people sit, um, you're running the risk that the host is going to come up, take you by the hand, and take you to the back. Now, I notice that we don't have a problem with that here. The, we could, in fact, we could take the front rows out, but I think we would be just fine. We could move them to the back and we could fill those up, right? We don't have that problem. They had the problem that you wanted to sit up the front where the honored guests would be seated. But there's times when that host has to come get you and take you to the back. Think of a, of a wedding feast. That's what he's looking at here. Who sits in the front? The mother of the bride, the father of the bride, the, after he's done walking his daughter down the aisle. Uh, the, the father or the, the mother and the grandmother and, and all the honored guests. And then you've got the family members and the best friends. And, and all those are up there at the front, right? And then you've got the rest of the rabble that are sitting behind them. So if you come up and you accidentally sit in the seat that's reserved for the mother of the bride, something's going to happen. Somebody's going to come and take you and move you towards the back. The lesson here, of course, is that those that exalt themselves will be humbled and those that humble themselves and sit in the back will be exalted. The host might come and get you and bring you to the front. He's addressing the pride that is in their hearts, that they feel like they don't need Jesus. They've got everything they need, and it's a matter of pride. Peter addresses the same thing in 1 Peter in chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Here it is, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. So you're not just speaking to the young or the old, or the, uh, the, the Greeks or the Jews, the men or the women. He says, all of you, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Then in verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So how is it that you're able to cast all your anxieties on him? Because he cares for you. How is it that we're, not a, that we're able to lay ourselves down, to humble ourselves and consider others more important than, than ourselves, as we read in Philippians 2? It's because we know that Jesus Christ cares for us. He will take care of us. We don't have to build ourselves up. Uh, when I was a, a newlywed, I was... I was, goodness gracious, I was so eager for the approval of my, my new bride that if she didn't approve of the way I did something, then I would grow defensive. I, I had to think in my own heart that I had, um, I had a, a, a suit of armor on that was shining. There were no rust spots. There were no dents in the armor. Um, it, was, it was just beautiful and, and shiny and there were no problems with it. The, the fact is I had a lot of rust spots. 
but I didn't want to see those rust spots. My sweet bride, so gentle, so kind, helped me to, to see those rust spots as a, as a beautiful bride should. Uh, as I learned that those rust spots were there and she loved me anyway, I came to understand that that was a far more valuable love, far more valuable love than a, than a wife that would, would say she loved me but not tell me of my rust spots. The Father, through Jesus, is telling these individuals here in this, this party that you've got rust spots, and I love, I love you enough to tell you about these rust spots on your armor. I love you anyway, not because you're right, but because my son is right. In Philippians, in chapter 2, verse, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. How is it that, that Jesus Christ, in the, who, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and yet I and you sometimes imagine, whether we say it out loud or not, that we have that equality with God. That God's somehow lucky to have us on his team. Well, God takes us to a different place in this passage. A place where he calls us to a point of humility. C.S. Lewis said that for pride is a spiritual cancer. Pride is a spiritual cancer. He said it eats up the very possibility of love or contentment, or even common sense. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. My friends, I have seen far more families torn apart by pride than by sexual sin or financial sin or something else. I've seen far more churches and other organizations torn apart by pride than by sexual sin or anything else. Pride is a spiritual cancer, and Jesus hits it head on here. He says, he's spoken to the invitees, he speaks to the host, basically he says to the host, you long to be a part of the in group in verse 12. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. So the point isn't, hey, your, your, your friends, your relatives, uh, your mother-in-law, you know, don't, he's not saying they're never to be invited to your parties. They're not to be invited to Thanksgiving dinner. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you're inviting them, he's getting at their motive. If you're inviting them because they will repay you, because you're forming alliances here, because you want to be a part of the end crowd, if you're inviting all of those in your rich neighbors because you want to be a part of that end crowd, then you're blowing it and you're missing the boat. You're looking for blessings that will not measure up, blessings that will burn. If you want blessings that matter, invite the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind. Invite them to your party and they will then be, then you will then have that blessing for they can't repay you 
is getting at the, the heart of this host and the other leaders in the room that want to be a part of the in crowd. Any, um, any, anybody in here that appreciates the musical Ham- Hamilton? Anybody? I love that. That's, it's awesome. I mean, there, there's so many good songs in there. W- one of those um, is with, with Aaron Burr and, and Alexander Hamilton. You get James Madison and Thomas Jefferson in the room. And it's, it's this, the song in the room where it's happening. I want to be in the room where it's happening. You don't want me to sing that. But it's, it's a great, great song. What's happening there is that James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, and Alexander Hamilton have gone to another room. And they've put together what we know of as the Great Compromise, where Hamilton gets votes that he needs to pass his, his financial plan for our nation. And, uh, uh, and then Jefferson, uh, Madison, they get what they want, which is the, uh, the, the United States Capitol on the Potomac. So right down the road, right? So that was a part of the great compromise. Burr wanted to be in the room where it's happening. His problem wasn't with the decision as much as the fact that he was left out. In his, the pride in his heart, he felt like he had to be in the room where it's happening. That's what's going on with a host in this place. Maybe you have the same opinion of yourself at times. I do. I want to be in the room where it's happening, not because I care about the decision so much. I want to be a part of the in crowd. You know what that's like? Well, that's where Burr was, where he runs for office because he wants to be a part of that. Jesus takes him in a different place. He says, your blessings aren't there. Your blessings are when you take care of the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. The blind and the lame were subsets of, of a class of people known as the maimed. The maimed weren't allowed into the full worship of the Jews either. Jesus is saying, you want blessings, go there. He's going to bring it back up again in verse 21. He gives the next part of the parable. He goes from being from a, a parable about a wedding to a parable about a great banquet. Everyone's still silent because they're, they're floored by what Jesus is saying to them. One person has the audacity to speak up. It's probably that guy that wishes he'd kept his mouth shut. <laughs> One of those who reclined at the table with him in verse 15 heard these things and he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Haven't I just said a noble thing, Jesus? Don't you approve of me? And all the other Pharisees and lawyers in the room would have patted him on the back and said, well said, well said, well said. And Jesus tears him to pieces. Sometimes it's better to just keep your mouth shut. This guy might have said something that was true, but he said it with a very pious heart. And Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And he dives into this parable of the great banquet, this parable of excuses he invited him. So uh, an invitation would have gone out in two parts. Think of it as a, um, uh, as a uh, save the date kind of invitation first. You get those, maybe you get them uh, via some little website app or something like that. Uh, or, or maybe you get it in the mail and it's just something that says save the date. There's a wedding on this date at this time. In other words, far out, two years out, put this date on your calendar to make sure you're here and available. In this place, such as say the date invitation would have gone out two or three days at a time, maybe a week at most. It would not have been a long-term thing, and it wouldn't have come via the Internet. It would have gone face-to-face. So somebody would have come to you, and they would have said, 
my, my boss, my landowner, my host, my, my owner, the, the guy that I work for, he is giving a party on this day. Here's the invitation. Will you come? And those individuals would have said yes or no. I will come or I'll be busy. He would have come back a few days later after the, the fattened calf was slaughtered and the, the meat's on the grill, the, the corn's ready, the potatoes are in the oven, the wine is in the decanters, the house is clean. You know, everything's ready to go. The party's ready. And then the, the guy, the host would have sent the, the servant out a second time, go tell everyone the party's ready. Now's the time. And so he goes back out and he says, come to the party, come to the party. And he begins to get excuses, one after another after another. And the, the excuses are ridiculous. One guy says, hey, you know what? I just bought a field and I need to go check it out. When was the last time you bought a field or a house that you didn't look at first? Right? So this guy suddenly discovered that he's bought a house in the last two days. And he's got to go look at it. It's a ridiculous excuse. That field will still be there tomorrow. The next guy is even more ridiculous. He says, hey, uh, you know, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. Not one yoke of oxen, but five yoke of oxen. I bought a whole lot of, a whole lot of oxen. I can, I can take care of this huge field that I've bought. And I bought them sight unseen. <laughs> so I've got to go check on my oxen. When was the last time you bought oxen sight unseen? When was the last time you bought oxen? <laughs> right? So he's bought five yoke of oxen and he, he wants to go look at them now. Well, those oxen will still be there in the morning. They won't be any different in the morning. Go look at them then. It's just an excuse. Uh, it's not a good reason. The third guy, the third guy's in trouble. He suddenly discovered that he's married, <laughs> right? And he's, he's got a wife. In the last couple, I've heard of people, you know, forgetting their anniversary, but to forget your wedding day. So in the last couple of days, he's suddenly gotten married and he discovered he's got a wife and maybe he should go um, spend some time with her. Bring your wife to the party, man. Uh, he's, he's, in, he's in big trouble. Full of excuses. So the host of, of, of the party is angry. These individuals are, are claiming some sort of, of self-satisfaction with the stuff they own or the affections they have that is greater than their satisfaction and their desire for Jesus. They valued other people more than they valued Christ. They preferred mud pies in the slum over a holiday at the sea. They're fooling themselves into thinking they need something more than Jesus when in reality they're settling for something that's far, far less than Jesus Christ. The idols have gripped their souls. They've weighed themselves down with backpacks full of, of bricks and concrete blocks and, and stuff of earth, the stuff that doesn't last and it's controlling their lives what are your idols what are my idols calvin said that our, our hearts are idol factories my friends you and i we, we create idols idols aren't like little golden statues on a on a mantle well it might be idols can be very good things like your family what I mentioned earlier about my desire for my wife's approval was an idol. I, I, her approval had become an idol for me. Maybe the behavior of your children is an idol. Maybe the approval of your children is an idol. So much so that you want their approval so desperately that you'll let them decide what you do and what you're gonna, where you're going to go on vacation, how you're going to live as a family. My friends, your children don't need to lead you. They need you to lead them. If you're waiting for your children to approve of everything you do, 
goodness. You're walking down the wrong trail. Your children don't need that. They need you to be the parent. It's like that with all of our idols, though. Our idols we use to deceive ourselves. The host is angry, and he sends his servant back out again. Forget those you've invited before. Go out and invite the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind. He says it again in verse 21. He tells him to go out to the streets and the lanes of the city. Not the boulevards, not the nice houses, not the nice neighborhoods. You go to the city streets and to the back alleys is the way we need to read that. That's what's meant here. And you bring those people in to my party, to a great banquet. Would not have happened. Jesus is saying, these are the ones I want you to go get. Servant comes back and says, it's, been, it's done. There's still room at the great banquet. And so the host sends a servant out again. Go outside the city to the highways and the hedges and bring them in. You bring them in. You compel them to come in. It's a thing that you're, 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 I've invited everybody and I want you to go some in. So who would have been in the highways and the hedges? The highways and the hedges would have been the non-Jews. Would have been uh, all of the other travelers that were traveling through the area at the time. The Gentiles from all other parts of the world. And the hedges would have been those that were the beggars that were sitting just off the road, hiding behind a bush with their hands out, lest they be trampled. It would have been the homeless living in a tent city. It would have been the folks that no one would have ever invited to a banquet, certainly a great banquet. My friends, Jesus doesn't do things the way we do them. But he does call us to do things the way that he does them. Maybe you look at this right now and you say, well, there goes that pastor in social gospel again. Maybe you're looking at this passage and you're thinking, that's just socialism. Jesus said it. This is the direction Jesus leads us. He leads me there and he leads you there. And yes, that might be uncomfortable, but that's where he takes us. And you can give it any name you want to, but in Scripture, it's Christianity. It's where Jesus leads us. Our blessing isn't from being in the room where it's happening. It isn't in being in the place where we get approval. It's in being in the place where we are, as Jesus has done, going to the lost and the least, to the poor, the blind, the lame, the crippled, to those that cannot come of their own free will, but we go to them and we bring them in. There's something else here in this passage. The first invitation is the general invitation to everyone. Jesus, the, the Father, first sent it out in, in Genesis chapter 3 when he's speaking to Adam, to Eve, and to a serpent. And he says to, to the three of them, this serpent is going to bruise the heel of your offspring but your offspring is going to crush that serpent's head that's the first invitation early as genesis chapter three and it's given again and again and again and again and again it's a save the date there's a messiah coming and the second invitation is the invitation of jesus christ and the kingdom that is at hand and him saying to the jews party time I've been telling you about it. Come on in. And they don't come. 
and he sends it out to the others that are poor and lame and crippled and blind. Now, there's a physical element to that. There really is. Jesus has been very clear in other places that he calls us to minister to those that are oppressed, that are orphans and widows, to those that are the poor, to those that are aliens in our midst. But there's a spiritual element to this as well, a major spiritual element. You and I spiritually, without Jesus Christ, are blind and lame and crippled and poor, and we cannot come to him unless he draws us to him. So when he, when he tells the servants to go out and bring them in, is his first word, and the second word when he sends them outside the city is to compel them to come in. It's the same sense. It's these servants are going to come on all sides of those individuals and bring them into the kingdom of God, and they're going to sit at the great banquet table of the Lord. Jesus takes our spiritual poverty, our spiritual blindness, our spiritual brokenness, and he replaces it with himself. And he brings us in to a table where he is seated. seated. Friends, we need to raise the value of spiritual status above the value of our social or financial status and begin to see those around us from a spiritual standpoint instead of from a social standpoint or a financial standpoint or an educational standpoint. What do we see when we look at someone? What do we see when we look at the mirror? The spiritual status is what's important. The spiritual status, raise that up above the other. God calls us here to exchange our financial and social mission for his spiritual mission. Jesus closes it with some very hard words in verse 24. He says, for I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. That is harsh. That's harsh. Now, what about the man that was healed that had dropsy? Jesus sent him out. After he healed him, Jesus sent him on his way. So he's not there at this point. Furthermore, he wouldn't have been invited. He's probably somebody that they would have brought in maybe from the kitchen, maybe from the street. Maybe it was somebody's cousin, and they, they brought him into the party just as a way to trap Jesus. He's gone. But all the rest of them, Jesus is saying, none of these men who are invited shall taste my banquet. So where do you see an invitation there? Here's an invitation. This is what the, this is like. Remember in, um, in, in Jonah, when Jonah sits in Nineveh, and he goes into the middle of the city, there's a long journey there, and he doesn't want to go there. None of the people in Nineveh know God. And he goes in there, and he says, look, day's coming. God's going to crush your city. And what happens? Everyone in the city begins to trust God. There's an invitation even here in this rebuke of the people that are in the room. Harsh. But they needed the harshness. There's three reasons, I think, why Jesus gave this harsh, these harsh words. And we're going to start with the third one. Third, they were the influencers and leaders in the city. They were the influencers and leaders in the city. They were leading others astray. And Jesus wants to speak to them and remind them that, that the way they're leading these people is not from him. And the second reason. Second, he could have softened it. He could have softened it. But that would not have been true. Jesus is going to speak truth. Sometimes the, the, the truth, no matter how softly we deliver it, comes across as harsh. John chapter 1, we know that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. It's a very gracious thing 
to speak the truth in love. It is not grace if truth is absent. And it is not truth if grace is absent. The two go together. Speaking the truth with grace can sometimes seem like acid being poured onto a hard heart. My friends, I would rather have acid poured on my hard heart than to go through life with a heart that is so hard that I cannot understand the love of Jesus Christ. The first reason that Jesus was harsh is because he loved the people. He wanted them to know the truth. Sometimes it takes harsh power to break through a hard heart. At this point, the Jews in the room, the Pharisees and the lawyers had not believed. And Jesus speaks to their hard hearts about what's more important to them. What's more important to you and to me? Is it our land, our oxen? Is it our family? Is it those others that we might have affection for? Are they more important to us than Jesus? Are you and I far too easily pleased? Are we? My friends, why would you settle for less than Jesus? Why? Why would you settle for less than Jesus Christ? Father, I pray that you would help us in that. Lord, I need it. I need it so desperately. Lord, thank you for your constant reminder in your word to pursue you above all else. Father, I pray that you'll help us as individuals, uh, as families, as a church to run hard after you. Lord, that we would be satisfied with nothing less than Jesus Christ. And where those things get in the way of our relationship with you, Father, I pray that you would point that out to us. I pray you would break through our hard hearts so that we would see you. Father, Lord, if there's anyone in this room that has not met you yet, I pray that that changes even now. Lord, that they would leave the stuff of earth behind, that they would believe you, Jesus, and they would follow you. In Christ's name, amen.